Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined once again in the studio by our regular panellists, Prudence Dear, Newish Back member, Dr. Band. Welcome to you both, Dr. Band. What have you got for us today? Uh, I have uh, some very important research information um, published by the British Medical Journal every year in their Christmas edition. Um, it's been running since 1982 in one of the oldest medical journals um, in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really light-hearted look at some research that's uh, done throughout the year. This um, is something they do every Christmas, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah, since 1982. Uh, the research, like the methods is... is Definitely scientific, but the content is uh, very different to what they usually publish. Excellent. Oh, we'll look forward to that. That's coming up in the second part of the show. And Prudence, welcome to you. Good morning. Morning, Nick. And um, what, what are you talking about? What am I going to talk about? Well, you know, I'll try and fill in some space, but... Uh, oh, right, sorry. <laughs> I've got a mic problem here. That's, That's much nicer. Better. Beautiful Thank straight you. into that mic. Thank okay. you. Look, I just thought we'd have a bit of fun in keeping with the theme of, you know, it's coming up to Christmas and everything else. What caught my eye and uh, just recently was the renaming of uh, monkeypox to mpox. Now, I thought, well, what's wrong with monkeys in the first place? And if you were going to rename that disease, I mean... Monkey's a nice word, but I think we find it, you know, the pox is probably the one that we'd want to avoid. So, I don't know, I think we could rename some things. So, we'll play with some, maybe some names around, around diseases. But, you know, my vote anyway would be for um, Monkey P for that one. I like that one, yes. <laughs> and to, so and bland, just a monkey pox, you get an M pox. Really? Can't make it more a, interesting than yes, that? Yes, I've had a dose of Monkey P. Right, so... <laughs> Anyway. Um, and in the first part of our show, many of our intelligent, very astute radiotherapy listeners would have been aware of the recent release of a new report by the Grattan Institute called A New Medicare, strengthening general practice, absolute music to my general practice ears. So I'm very excited to have here in the studio the report's authors, Daniel Romanas, and on the telephone we'll have Peter Breeden, who's also an author, unfortunately, at home with COVID. We'll have them on in a moment. Uh, but before that... It's the dog park shout out uh, here at Triple R. We love all animals. I advise the lottles, but you, you don't, don't see, see many, many of them, them in the, the park. park, do you? So, dogs, it is. Um, and uh, today we're going to have a shout out to all of the puppies and dogs that we've talked about on radiotherapy over this year. Uh, particular uh, mentions go to um, Graham and Bruiser. Bruiser, the wonderful adopted uh, uh, Staffy, eight years old, now 12 years old, getting a bit limp, a bit like his own. No, Graham. Uh, but lovely to say good morning to you, Graham. No. <laughs> Graham and I both limp around the dog park together with our sore hind legs, just like our dogs. It's all a bit sad. Um, but I also did the other day in the dog park, Matt and Luna were there again. Luna's one of those frisbee dogs, just the most amazing, beautiful dog catching the frisbee. We were watching a lot of dog behaviour, and I did think maybe next year, I don't know what you think about this, Prudence, but I thought we ought to get a dog behaviour expert in at some point. Oh, so I think the amazing, psychology of dogs and how they behave is just extraordinary. Well, we've, we have looked at the past in sort of, you know, ways that people have understood do our dogs really love us for example yeah so i think we'll have to get someone because any chance to talk more about dogs is fantastic all right well in a moment we're gonna have some news this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about triple r or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the triple r website at rrr.org.au I've got one very quick bit of news. It's a shout-out to our incredible listeners who are fascinated by this area. Uh, For those who don't realise that we are starting next year the review of the Voluntary Assisted Dying Legislation, which is slated for review beginning next year. Um, And full disclosure, I'm on the board of Dying with Dignity Victoria. We are very interested to know what people's 
ideas are about what should be changed. And we would love people to jump onto the DWDV website and fill in a brief survey. We really, really want a span of views about how this legislation is working, what should be done, what should be changed. So jump onto www.dwdv.org.vic. Uh, get this right in a minute. Just, just put DWDV, Dying with Dignity Victoria, to your search engine. Uh, and there's a link on the front page of the website to fill in the survey. We would love as many as possible to do that. Won't take long. We want your views. That's enough of me muddling that lot of <laughs> prudence. Setting the standard. Right, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, look, um, again, as we come to the end of the year, things change, don't they, in terms of our services and funding. And um, the the additional um, uh, sessions that are available for allied health and in particular for psych- psychological services through the Better, um, Better, Better Access Scheme... Um, which have been 20 for the last couple of years, are now mm-hmm. going to go back down to 10. Yes. So 10 sessions um, per year, which, you know, on average would be like somebody being able to access a psychologist, a psychotherapist or something once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, really not great for other than trying to kind of maintain um, things in a stable state but not necessarily making good progress. And obviously the real benefit of having had the opportunity for 20 sessions is like it basically adds up to pretty much fortnightly sessions for somebody through throughout the year. Um, so much what, more effective. So, so a, what about the argument that all that's done is allow people who are already getting help to get more help? It's blocked access to people who need it. Those who would love to see a psychologist or a mental health professional, it's a and this, one. and it's it's certainly true in my practical experience. I mean, we have had so much trouble getting people in. It's partly because mm. all of those mental health professionals have been flat out. booked up with all these extra sessions. So yeah. there's a part of me who thinks, well, maybe this is not such a bad thing. Free up some of those mental health professionals to see some of those poor souls who are waiting in line. Yes, and the wait lists in some cases are incredibly long. Um, I guess again, you know, it comes back to, well, is it better to provide a service that's actually effective or one that just kind of provides a bit of a holding operation so it's a it's a balancing act i don't know what the answer is other than we need to obviously invest more in making sure we get as many sort of qualified therapists available but that's a long term yeah no question that we'd love to have more access to that kind of health certainly like love to have more access to that where there wasn't an out-of-pocket cost because it's still Mm. mind-numbingly expensive for a lot of people and (laughs) i've got to plead to the government please don't ask that uh, for those extra 10 sessions be for those who really need Need it. We used to have that with the extra six. Uh, so Medicare yeah. used to give you 12 with an extra six, so up to 18 for those with special needs. And every single person came with a thing from their psychologist or mental health professional saying, this person has special needs. It's impossible yep. for us to say, oh, I'm sorry, your needs aren't special enough. You can't have it. Absolutely. Everyone's an individual and those needs are really genuine. Yeah. yeah so. And there's a lot of report writing as well for the, you know, the practitioners. So it's just a lot of paperwork. So complicated area, but very important for people listening to realise that as of 2023 at the moment, uh, the number of allied health, uh, psychology, mental health sessions will be down from 20 down to 10, 6 and 4. Um, We'll be back in just a minute and we'll be talking to um, Danielle and Peter from the Grattan Institute. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have uh, on the telephone now, we have um, Peter Breeden and in the studio we have Daniel Romanis, both from the Grattan Institute. I can say first hi to you, Peter. Can you hear me okay? I can. Thank you, Nick. Lovely to have you on. And I'm sorry to hear that you're at home because you have COVID. So first up, are you Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's been very persistent, but fortunately mild, so not too bad. Thank you. So it's one of these things we need to celebrate, isn't it, that um, most people these days with COVID are OK. I'm guessing that you've been fully vaccinated. Yep, I've had all four, and yeah, I hope, certainly hope everyone out there eligible is, uh, has, has theirs up to date as well. Yes, thank you. A little shout-out for vaccination. Um, So, Peter, just before we um, go into this, I just want you to outline for us what is this report that the Grattan Institute has produced? What are the main things that this is about? Well, we really looked at um, a general practice because, as everyone listening will know, there's a really widespread um, observation that general practice is in crisis. Um, So we looked at uh, where that's coming from. Currently, general practices are pretty swamped by the demands from the pandemic. 
But there's also this longer underlying problem. The main system for, for really managing and funding general practice has been around for 40 years, since the 1980s. It hasn't really changed much. But in that period, the health needs of Australians have transformed. So people now are much older, much sicker, much more likely to have multiple chronic diseases, mental health concerns. But as people have gotten more complex to diagnose and treat and to support to manage their own conditions, um, really the model of general practice has stayed pretty much stuck in time. So the average consultation length of a GP visit is still just 15 minutes across all those decades. So GPs are scrambling to try and cram more and more complex care and support into this unchanging 15-minute um, visit. And at the same time, they're not supported by the, the range of support staff that you see uh, helping them in other countries. And looking into this, we really found that it's because the way we fund general practice and the way the workforce model is in general practice hasn't changed to keep up with those new health needs. All right, thank you. That's a very neat summary. Now, I want to bring in Danielle, who's here with us. Danielle Roman is also from the Grattan Institute and co-author of this report. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning, Nick. Lovely to have you here in the studio. Now, before we actually hear more about the report, can you just tell us who, who are the Grattan Institute? Of course. Uh, so, Grattan Institute is based here in Melbourne. It's an independent, non-partisan think tank. Uh, and it's funded primarily through donations, matching donations from the Commonwealth and state governments, which enables Grattan to operate independently, publish on a, on a wide range of public policy issues. And what's the funding? How do we know that you're not horribly biased and um, some sort of government plot to undermine the health system? <laughs> so most of the funding comes from those matching donations from the state and Commonwealth governments. Quite a, quite a while back now on the the uh, Institute primarily operates off that endowment. It also has some additional funding from a range of different um, sponsors, including uh, Medibank, among others. Okay. So um, let's, let's just start talking about what the detail is in this report. And, Danielle, I'll ask you first up. And, uh, Peter, you're on the phone, so feel free to yell out if, <laughs> if you want to chip in. Um, but let's start with one of the issues from my point of view is that what we have is a fee-for-service system where you only get paid, the doctor only gets paid if the patient sees the doctor and all the other work that we do gets no funding. So the incentive is to see people, see them quickly, <clears throat> turn them around uh, and no incentive for other work to be done by someone else. So is that a good model for general practice? Well, in the report, we say it's, it's a bit of both. So fee-for-service isn't all bad. Uh, the evidence shows that it works well for some things, including uh, immunisations, because it incentivises a GP to see as many people as possible, get as many people jabbed as possible. Uh, what it doesn't work well for is chronic disease, which is increasingly making up a really large proportion of what GPs do. Um, so it's rigid, it's inflexible. The funding is tied to the GP and often the GP alone for doing work. Uh, it's completely hostile to team-based care because every time a GP has uh, another member of the team do the work, the uh, amount of funding earned is lower or often non-existent. Uh, and the GP themselves lose, lose out on income. So international reviews have found consistently that fee-for-service is a, a profound barrier to team-based care. And that's the team-based care that we need in order to meet growing demand in Victoria, sorry, in, in Australia, that GPs can't do it all on their own. There's an absolute addiction, it seems to me, to fee-for-service in all aspects of Medicare, um, and it's something which even the doctors seem to be reluctant to give up. So what's the alternative? And I might go to you, Peter, you, uh, you're listening to this. So what is the alternative to just paying a doctor every time they see a patient? Well, the good news is uh, we've seen other countries lead the way. So Australia is very unusual in still clinging to this outdated model of primarily just leaning on fee-for-service. Um, other countries have introduced what's called a blended funding model, and that keeps a little bit of fee-for-service, so uh, the treating clinician will still get a fee for every visit. Um, and as Danielle mentioned, that has the benefit of making sure um, people still want to provide care, um, still provide access to care, but it's balanced out by bringing in other parts of funding. And the big piece we talk about is this flexible patient budget. So you get a combination of the, the smaller visit fees plus this flexible budget. And that allows the clinic to divide that budget up amongst a range of different clinicians, so it doesn't always have to be the GP working largely on their own and unsupported. But the other crucial feature of this patient budget is you can adjust it upwards for those patients that have the more complex needs. So it might be because they have multiple chronic diseases, 
and they're older or they're suffering from various types of disadvantage, this means their budget's higher, and that rewards um, the clinic for looking after people who are more complex, who have more care needs. So the big two problems with fee-for-service as we have it now is, one, like you said, it, it's about that churn, just get people through, not a good fit for chronic disease and the, and, and the, and the care model that's needed there. But the other is it's not adjusted for those needs. So you end up at GPs and clinics working in poorer neighbourhoods with people with more complex needs. They're really disadvantaged with this one-size-fits-all funding model. So bringing this blended funding model, it can reward continuity, it can support team-based care, and it can also fund um, need instead of speed to get fairer access and, and fairer outcomes. So the, the principle sounds lovely. Daniel, I'm going to turn to you ask you this question. Um, who's going to decide who actually has more complex needs, who holds the funding, who allocates it all? It just sounds like a minefield. Well, other countries do it, you know, every day. Um, so it's, it's definitely navigable. Uh, the, complexity, the complexity calculations tend to be based on, um, on uh, kind of algorithms so that they're standardised across all um, clinics and, and don't depend on subjective assessments. So, just, sorry to interrupt, but take a, a small privately owned general practice run mm. practice, like, say, one in St Kilda that I happen to know quite well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea that we would suddenly be handed a bucket of money and having to work out how to allocate this and so on sounds very intimidating. Is, is this aimed at this kind of small clinic or is the idea that we would completely transform and have much bigger um, properly managed clinics? I say properly because we are not managers. Yeah. Um, no, so it's a model that can work for all different kinds of clinics. It is easier for larger clinics to, to operate with a, a model of the size because they can pull um, uh, they can pull funding across multiple patients. But it's a funding model that's used in, in many, many parts of the world across small practices and large practices alike. So which countries are doing this successfully? But the payment model? Um, gosh, a better question probably is which, which ones aren't. So <laughs> most wealthy countries now uh, fund primary care um, using that combination Peter mentioned of the flexible patient budget plus some fee-for-service and whether that's for um, visit fees or, or performance-based fees is... It varies, but uh, certainly most wealthy countries. Even long-term holdouts like Singapore or British Columbia, which is one of the only Canadian provinces to stay with fever service, have announced actually this year that they'll be transitioning in the, in the next couple of years. So Australia is increasingly lonely in fever service land. We are a long way away from everything, so it sounds yes. like we're a long way away. <laughs> um, Peter, I want to ask you this question. Uh, you talk in the report about what's called teamlets. Um, can you just explain what a teamlet would be? Sure. So... One of the questions we've had and one of the concerns that's raised is if you have all these different kinds of clinicians in the clinic, so you might have a psychologist, um, a pharmacist, a paramedic, all these people providing care, how do you maintain the, the continuity? How does the patient know who they're dealing with and have a personal relationship with the core team? So one of the models that's been successful there is what you mentioned, teamlets. That's where you have the GP who's sort of accountable for the care for the patients that they work with, but they're supported by this small core team. It might be a practice nurse or a nurse practitioner or an Aboriginal health worker, or often in other countries the teamlet includes a administrative helper who, who does a lot of note-taking and communication work to support the GP. So the teamlet might be two or three clinicians working as a really tight unit so every day they'll have um, checking in with each other formally and informally. They'll have case conferences. And this way they keep a line of sight of the care. The GP knows everything that's going on. The patient has a close relationship with all the members of that core team. And then that team can slot them in to all the other types of clinicians that might work in the practice part-time for more specialised care for mental health or reviewing medications or whatever it is. So that team lets a way to get the balance between um, continuity, avoiding fragmentation, um, but, but being able to link people into the broader team as well. I, I absolutely love the idea of that. And you did say a practice assistant who would be uh, uh, in charge of note-taking, which means I don't have to learn to touch type, which would be... <laughs> because <laughs> it's so embarrassing sitting in front of my patients with my lousy typing skills. Danielle? And it's a lot nicer for the patient as well. So I'm sure many people listening will have had the experience of going to the GP and talking to the GP's back or shoulder as the GP types furiously into the computer. So the difference with this model is that the GP can have a genuine conversation with you as their patient while the uh, assistant is taking all the notes, 
preparing the prescriptions and the referrals, all the administration, um, administrative aspects of it, uh, which the GP can sign off on at the end. And it means that you leave with everything you need and having meaningfully engaged with the person that's providing your care. It's just after 10.20 here on 3RRR. You're listening to me, Dr Nick, on radiotherapy. We have in the studio from the Grattan Institute, we have Daniel Romanes. And on the telephone, we've got Peter Breeden, also from the Grattan Institute. We're discussing this new report about the future of general practice and how it's all going to be changed and made much, much, much better, more efficient and more effective. Um, Dr Band, you've got a question. Yeah, just a quick question about this blended healthcare versus fee-for-service. What is the difference in cost to the entire Medicare system if this was implemented? Oh, just a question about the whole cost of the entire system. <laughs> well, you know, if we were to change over, it sounds like fantastic um, for the patients and the, and the doctors, but is there a, a cost differential to the healthcare system? It's a great question. So I'll just whip out my spreadsheet. <laughs> no, actually, it, it can be cost neutral. So it really depends on how government wants to implement it. But it's really about changing how the funding is provided rather than changing the quantum of it. That said, we do recommend that uh, that practices opting into a new funding model should be given an uplift because there are real change costs for them involved. Words like uplift, music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all love an uplift, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, now, a couple of things I want to have explained, please. You talk about two different um, potential practitioners involved. One is the nurse practitioner. One is what's called a physician assistant. Now, I'm familiar with nurse practitioners. I actually interviewed Australia's very first nurse practitioner okay. over 20 years ago on ABC television um, in New South Wales. Um, and I think that's fairly clear to most people that a nurse practitioner is a highly trained nurse who has uh, rights over some aspects of prescribing and investigating over and above and beyond what a, a nurse might otherwise. But Peter, I might ask you this question. Uh, a physician assistant, I don't believe we have those in Australia. They're part of a potential team. What does that mean? A physician assistant is um, there's somebody who has several years of work experience as a clinician. Um, so they might be um, a nurse or they might be an allied health uh, clinician and then they do a subsequent postgraduate uh, qualification to become a physician assistant. And then they work under the direct authority of um, a doctor, so in this case a GP. And the GP can delegate pretty much the full breadth of their work to that physician assistant. And then the physician assistant can do what's agreed within that scope pretty independently. And it's a very widespread model in particularly the U.S., um, it's also present in the UK and other countries. And the evidence for it is very strong that it is uh, it, it achieves the same quality um, and outcomes for health as the as the the doctor working alone, um, but it is more efficient. and it's particularly good at improving access in areas where there just aren't enough doctors to go around. Australia does have a very small number of physician assistants. Queensland um, did some uh, changes to led their legislation to, to make it legal and there was a training program for a few years and uh, those physician assistants working in Queensland, um, it went down quite well um, both with patients and with doctors. So there are thousands and thousands of these physician assistants in other countries. In Australia, just a handful. Um, but we think that's a good model. It really, it's sometimes called in other countries a physician extender. So this is the idea that they can do work on behalf of the doctor and just sort of multiply uh, the amount of patients that they can care for. So the evidence is very strong, um, but there's been a lot of resistance to the model here in Australia and, and quite a bit of inertia about introducing it. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I had no idea we even had physician assistants in this country. So, Danielle, I can turn to you to ask you this question. If we are going to totally transform this model from what we have at the moment to this potentially new model outlined in your report, what's the sort of timeline? How long would it take to actually make this transition? So we really urge government to take its time with the transition. Uh, in the report, we highlight a litany of previous uh, Medicare reform pilots. Yes, I liked your headline to that one, more pilots than Qantas. More than Qantas, indeed. So uh, the federal government has tried about four times over the last 25 years to reform Medicare um, and have run large-scale pilots like healthcare homes, although most have been more successful than healthcare homes, it's important to note. And those haven't succeeded. They haven't, they haven't stayed the course. Um, we think it's really important that government take its time with the design and that it crucially get the, get the community on board and get GPs on board with the new model. Uh, we recommend they take about five years uh, to, um, to trial the, uh, the new model in up to 1,000 practices 
um, sort of learning as we go and, and working in the first instance with the general practices who are most kind of excited to, change, to try a new approach. So you want another pilot? Just one more, just one more pilot. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the pilot that actually works. But, but uh, do you have support for this change from, for instance, the RACGP, who might be quite important for this? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, so certainly many elements of the report, many of the recommendations that we make are consistent with where our SCGP has said they want our general practice to go. Um, but of course, there are, I think, differences between the Grattan report and our SCGP in terms of the priorities for the strengthening Medicare funding. So government has allocated um, uh, $750 million over the forward estimates of the next four years uh, for strengthening general practice with another $220 million thrown in for practice grants. Um, and I think it's, it's no surprise that our SCGP would like to see the bulk of that money several times over actually, go into the uh, MBS rebate, which would translate into higher incomes for GPs. Um, that's not what we would identify as a priority. So one of the things, Peter, I just want to ask you this one quickly. One thing some people say is, oh, we just need more GPs. You don't have to change the model, just get more GPs on board. But I was very interested to read in your report that actually we do quite well in Australia for numbers of GPs uh, and that, in fact, the GPs per capita have... Uh, kept in line, in fact, increased, if anything. This thing I was slightly astonished by was to see that there are countries with more GPs per capita, and somehow Portugal seems to have twice as many as almost anywhere in the world. Can you just explain what's going on here? Yeah, we were a bit surprised as well, because there's this widespread belief there's not enough GPs. I think it partly comes from these big pandemic pressures right now. We've seen that wait times have gone down steadily over recent years, um, and actually billing rates have been very high um, in recent years, but there's been a sudden dip, which we think is about coming out of the pandemic. So this sense of a shortage probably is, is partly about that. But if you look at the bigger trends and all the data points we can look at, you're right. We've got well above the average levels of GPs per capita compared to all the other rich countries. Um, and it's been increasing, as you say. So we've got more GPs per capita than we had five or 10 years ago. Um, but we do have this big problem of the distribution of GPs. So there's still a big shortage in rural areas, in certain rural areas. So we touch on that in the report and we say in those areas where the market's just not working, uh, the Commonwealth and the state government need to step up, pull their money and employ GPs or, or stabilise um, clinics in those areas where, where people just can't attract GPs. So that is an issue, the distribution of GPs. But overall, the supply is good. And the other thing is it's going to increase further because the, the number of GPs in training has increased uh, over 70% over the f last five years or so. So, yeah, I think focusing on GP supply isn't the big solution. It's more about expanding that team to support the GP and finding new ways to um, attract and retain GPs in those underserved out of suburban and rural areas. Beautifully put, Peter. I couldn't agree more. Um, we'll have to wind up here. I have to say, anything that uh, changes the system where the good GPs get paid much less than the bad GPs, <laughs> which is what happens under a fee-for-service system. I trained in the National Health Service where at least the lousy GPs didn't get paid more than the good ones. So I, I fully support everything that you're doing. I must say, I think this change is long overdue. Um, thank you, Peter. Lovely to talk to you on the telephone. Um, and uh, Danielle in the studio, thank you for coming in. Thank you to the Grattan Institute. This is a huge report, a huge amount of work. Um, it's actually fascinating reading, so I'd encourage anyone who's interested uh, to jump online, have a look at the report, um, and have a think for yourselves. But uh, thank you very much, Danielle. Thanks so much. Um, that was uh, Danielle Romanes and Peter Breeden from the Grattan Institute. Oh, fascinating food for thought. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Dr. Ben, take it away. Yes, um, so the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal we're talking about this morning. So for those unfamiliar, the British Medical Journal is one of the oldest uh, peer-reviewed journals in the world. It was first the first weekly edition, um, which is now called the BMJ, was published in October 1840 as the Provincial Medical and Surgical Journal. Uh, so forget April Fools, the British Medical Journal likes to get silly around Christmas time. Since eight, 1982, so this year's the 40th edition, every 
every year the journal publishes a series of papers that are exactly, not exactly spoofs. The science is real, but they're on topics that the esteemed journal like the BMJ wouldn't normally touch. So past highlights for me were uh, in 2011, there was a study called Is 27 a Dangerous Age for Famous Musicians? A retrospective cohort study. Or, one of my favourites, orthopaedic surgeons, as strong as an ox and almost twice as clever, a multi-centre uh, pr- prospective um, comparative study which compared orthopaedic surgeons to anaesthetists and found that not only are we stronger, but our IQs are far higher than anaesthetists. Said only by an orthopaedic surgeon. It must be mentioned. Well, it was proper science, Dr Nick. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about one of my favourite articles from um, the, the past, which... Um, five years ago, there was an article called A Shopping List for Doctors. Now, I was totally unfamiliar with this, but Dr. Christopher Rawson Penfold, who lived between 1811 and 1870, was trained and worked in the NHS. Um, and what people might not appreciate, especially this time of year, is that doctors played a major role in the development of Australian in the Australian wine industry, and two remain as popular brands today, Penfolds and Lindemann's. Dr. Penfold studied medicine at St. Bartholomew Hospital in London. You're joking. Graduating in 1838. And for six years, he practised medicine in Brighton in, in the UK before emigrating to Australia in 1844 and settling close to Adelaide. He believed, and I'm not sure if uh, the doctors in the studio believe, um, the medicinal power of wine, particularly for the treatment of anemia. And before he left Britain, he obtained vine cuttings from France. Of course, this would be illegal now, but in Australia, he developed a successful medical practice and he began to make wine. Originally, this was intended for medicinal use, but uh, the demand grew and obviously it became into the brand that we know today. Anyway, this morning, we have the clinical editor of the British Medical Journal joining us via Zoom from Switzerland, Jennifer Rassanathan. Good morning, Jennifer, or Jenny, sorry. Yes, hi. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about the BMJ Christmas edition, how it came about, um, and uh, you know what, where it is going these days? Yeah, absolutely. And good morning. My name is Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a clinical editor for the BMJ and a family medicine doctor. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the history of the Christmas issue. Um, We've been publishing a Christmas edition since 1982, so this is our 40th anniversary. Um, and it w- originally came to be under then-editor Stephen Locke, uh, intended as a break from the usual mix of kind of serious research and hard-hitting scholarly content, um, but nonetheless wanted it to adhere to the same criteria of rigor and readability and novelty, which continues to this day. And of course, it's now become a much anticipated annual tradition. <laughs> Thank you. What, what is your favorite Christmas edition article? I, I outlined for the listeners earlier that mine was the, the uh, article about orthopedic surgeons being stronger and smarter than pretty much every other doctor. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good one. And this is a tough question. Um, my friend and colleague, Nav Joyt-Ladder, recapped highlights from Christmas issues past in the 2016 edition of the BMJ Christmas issue. And there have been some real crackers. Um, so my first exposure to the Christmas issue was with the Peppa Pig article in 2017, considering how the portrayal of Dr. Brown Bear might influence patient expectations of general practice. And so that really spoke to me as a family medicine doctor. Uh, Jenny, I'm um, sorry, I'm, for our listeners who are not so familiar with Peppa Pig, who is Dr. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> uh, so Peppa Pig is a, well, originally British cartoon um, with a little girl, Peppa, and her little brother, George. I'm actually impressed with myself that I know those um, <laughs> and names and her two parents, and um, their GP is Dr. Brown Bear. And so this author actually... Uh, describes three cases um, in episodes of Peppa Pig where, you know, Dr. Brown Bear is called in to consult on various conditions. But what I was actually going to say is, though I'm quite fond of that one, I'm torn between uh, a paper from a prior issue, which was in 2019, we published a research paper on, quote, Q fever. 
And this explored the superstition of doctors on hospital wards uttering the word quiet uh, and then allowing um, mayhem to uh, uh, (laughs) actualize. And so unsurprisingly, the study findings refuted the long held substitution or superstition, excuse me, that uttering the word quiet would impact clinical workload later in the day. And while I don't have a favorite article from this year, I would point listeners this weekend to our feature on She-Hulk, which is an incredible case of transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease. I like this paper for so many reasons. Um, The author was a joy to work with. It was so fun to play with the language in this one. And it also importantly highlights the fact that blood donors are the actual heroes. (laughs) I actually read this article and as a GP, I was slightly confused because there's quite a lot of technical language in there. And I couldn't quite unpack the humor from reality. (laughs) And I was a bit concerned, am I missing something here? And then I realized it's actually a a call to um, for good works uh, and money to go to the right place. So, I was, so in the end, I got it. But it was quite a, it's okay. quite, a, quite a complicated article, actually. <laughs> Dr. Baird. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciated that article as well. It's, it's a really, it's a really, uh, really lovely one. Uh, one of my favourites from the past was uh, from Dr. Heinrich, which is something we could all adhere to at this time of the year, the effect of gastric function and symptoms of drinking wine, black tea or schnapps <laughs> with Swiss cheese fondue, a randomised controlled <laughs> crossover trial. Um, they compare the effects of drinking wine or black tea with Swiss fondue followed by a shot of cherry schnapps on gastric emptying, emptying, appetite and abdominal symptoms, something that all of us hopefully will have over the next few weeks. And can you give us some recommendations? What order and uh, what should we have? Absolutely. Well, as you would know, I mean, um, Jenny's in Switzerland, so the, the, the pursuit of fondue, and there's lots of rules um, with fondue, like l- losing bread in the fondue can be penalised by a dip in, a, in lakes or, or being Ooh. shut out of the house while uh, we, they find the piece of bread. But the conclusion was, because they take it very seriously in Switzerland, was that gastric emptying after Swiss cheese fondue was significantly faster when fondue was consumed with tea or water rather than with wine or schnapps. So mm. if you're keen on experiencing all of the delights at your Christmas table or Hanukkah table or festive season table this year, I would recommend from this article that you choose uh, t- black tea or uh, or water. The health message from radiotherapy. <laughs> Prudence, you've got a well, question. Well, I wanted to interject. Yeah, well, perhaps but just one of my favourites, actually, and probably being one of the older people here. Maybe I've got a longer memory, but the examples we've been hearing so far are quite recent. Um, I think I can go back to the 1980s, and I can remember an article, um, kind of uh, was a surgical audit report from the teddy bear hospital, <laughs> which detailed all the types of injuries that teddy bears were presenting with, like, you know, traumatic you know, amputation of a limb, you know, loss of eyes, loss of less loss of stuffing from head and so on, and terrible tears. And then, you know, the interventions that were being performed in order to reassemble these poor little animals. And I, I don't know if that was about... That might have been about 1982 or 83, I think. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Um, it seems like a very uniquely British um, thing to do to have this kind of spoof but seriousness. Is it is it something that the journal really enjoys putting together and how long does it take to find these articles and then publish them? Uh, yes, the irony is not lost on me that I am an American leading this year's Christmas issue. <laughs> in fact, been questioned by one of my British colleagues as to that's whether a, or not that's... That's a very good point. Yes. Irony not lost on American. Well done. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I think, do we enjoy it? Um, we love seeing the issue come out. Um, it is we're in the very busy lead up to a publication or print date right now, and so things are busy. But it's a wonderful group of people working on this, and this issue does give us a chance to have fun and publish more lighthearted content at the same time that we also aim for the issue to be heartwarming. And we take the opportunity at the end of the year to publish on topics that matter to us, um, which is meaningful. So 
In particular, we have pieces this year about appreciating um, colleagues that stand and work alongside us uh, in our healthcare settings and also valuing healthcare workers. Um, And last year, I handled the Christmas article about the meaning of hope for participants in clinical trials. And of course, that's quite sincere and meaningful. I I would also be remiss if I didn't say that we run an annual charity appeal, which features heavily in every Christmas issue. This year, readers can support the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Um, But yeah, it is really fun. And um, just to answer your last question about the timeline, uh, we started preparing for this year's issue in April. Wow. I particularly like the article about uh, recognising the other um, healthcare workers or, or people in the healthcare industry that have contributed over the last two years. Uh, as, as a doctor working you know, in a huge public hospital here, I really appreciated the work of the cleaners. I mean, they became almost the most important people in our mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, they were fantastic. And, and hearing some of the stories of the, the finance people that didn't have a job and they've gone into working into healthcare is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, getting through all of this, uh, the mess over the last two years is uh, certainly a team effort. And I hope that really binds us as um, a medical industry together to work uh, collaboratively in the future. I'm glad you enjoyed that one. We also really like that piece. And there is more to come on the theme of appreciating healthcare workers, helping to boost our morale, and really appreciating the colleagues that work alongside us. And I really want to um, support that one. When I worked in the National Health Service, uh, I remember how important the tea lady was. It still existed in those (laughs) days. Uh, And I still remember the day when the the tea lady, because she got to know the patients on the ward, and she came around to me and said, Nick, I think there's something wrong with the woman in bed five. Mm. And and she was spot on. And something had happened, I can't remember what now, but she was the first one to pick it up before any of the doctors or nurses did. And it was an absolute testimony to how important it is to have staff who are part of a team. Because uh, exactly as you say, Dr Van, doesn't matter whether you're a cleaner or a tea lady, you're still part of the team. And so to say, she was reading the tea leaves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Jenny, for your um, time and getting up um, very early in the morning. It's, uh, we're on the same date in Switzerland and Melbourne, Australia. So thank you so much for um, giving your time and talking a bit about the Christmas edition. We really look forward to um, reading all the articles as they release next week. And also, um, we will work on a radiotherapy Christmas edition for BMJ in 2023. What do you think, Dr Nick? I think that's an excellent idea. And uh, and Jenny, just one last thing. I just want to ask uh, people who are listening who think, oh, but I don't subscribe to the BMJ. How do I read these things? Can people get these articles online or do they have to suddenly start subscribing? Hmm. Ah. <laughs> topic to end on. I wish I could say that we were releasing all of this content uh, openly for everybody, but a handful of papers will be open access, um, and uh, we're, we'll look into future solutions for that. But our hope is that readers can think and reflect, curl up with this issue in a cozy chair, and enjoy the rest of this year. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, that's been lovely to have you. That was Dr. Dr. Jenny Razanathan from the British Medical Journal uh, talking about the Christmas edition. Um, it seems like you can't get all of that lot uh, online for free, so you're just going to have to subscribe the British Medical Journal, well worth it and uh, very good bedtime reading for anyone. Uh, Get into it now. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr. Band, there are a few text messages come through. Yeah, it? there have been a few, and it's so good to hear from you, so keep them coming in. From 362, sorry, I don't have a name, but Scribes, um, just on our point about physician assistants, Scribes are well known to help in ED departments, medical nurses, etc. There's a model at uh, Cabrini Health, and I know that a lot of medical students were used during the pandemic to fill gaps and, and do um, Scribes, so maybe that's a solution in, in general practice. Um, 
Good morning, great show from 847. I'm a psychologist that treats um, the in-demand, uh, treats and the demand for additional services have increased, but I've treated over 900 patients, such as oh. refugees, those who have been through domestic violence and other with c complex PTSD over the past six years successfully. Only a very small percentage have needed 20 sessions or more. Um, cheers, Sergio. So that's a, that's a really nice message and, uh, and underlines the complexities of what we're talking about. I don't think anyone wants to withdraw access to mental health care, um, but I certainly would support the idea that um, uh, 20 sessions is not necessarily essential for everyone if it cuts access to some of those people who don't get it otherwise. Anything else on the text line for us there? Uh, there was one from directly to Prudence, suggesting an alternative to monkeypox, which was banana drama. Banana drama. Yeah. Nah. Magic. <laughs> nah, I had a bit of old banana drama. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a very nice se drama. That's a very nice segue to Prudence, dear, because um, yeah, we've been th we're thinking about this sort of names thing, changing monkeypox to mpox, for goodness sake. So tell us what you've been coming up with, Prudence. <laughs> well, I've not so much substitutions, really, but just finding really nice examples of different types of diseases and conditions. Um, and, of course, I mean, just some of them. I mean, yeah, just the kind of names that some are really quite explicit, you know, that you know what it means and it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, restless leg or whooping cough. I mean, whooping cough's a lovely kind of word because it really just sums it all up. Well, it's, But it's interesting because people say whooping cough, but what is whooping cough? And in fact, the whoop comes from small babies. Adults don't oh, hoop okay. when they have whooping cough. They just cough. And the whoop from a small baby sounds like this because they go, <laughs> and then they go, <laughs> it's a squeak. Oh, uh, as they get a tiny bit of air through their airways. How do I know? Because my now 26-year-old nearly died of whooping cough when she wow. was five weeks old. And I heard that squeak on multiple occasions when she had whooping cough. And the question was, did air get in before or after brain damage or death? I'm glad to say she was fine. But yeah. that's why whooping cough is so severe. It's and that's the hoop. It's a squeak, condition. not a hoop. So there are. We, shouldn't, we should call it squeaky cough, not whooping <laughs> cough. <laughs> Well, thanks for that input. And actually, that almost that gives me a bit of a segue, really, because, I mean, part of, you know, looking around at, at names and things like that for diseases kind of led me into the world of kind of kids' stories mm -hmm. and poetry. We, like, we, we like a bit of that, don't we? And how, do we, how much do we love A.A. A. Milne? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and the stories I don't think A.A. Milne's done anything to get cancelled yet. I'm sure there's something Well, I, well I've got some other rhymes that would get us cancelled, probably. But, I'm, you know, I just Don't love, go on. I love... Oh, you want some... Well, <laughs> we'll, do, we'll see if we've got some time left. Um, yeah, well, you know, Christopher Robin had weasels and sneasels, of course. Don't forget. And they bundled him into his bed. They gave him what goes with a cold in the nose and some more for a cold in the head. They wondered if weasels could turn into measles, if sneasels would turn into mumps. They examined his chest for a rash and the rest of his body for swellings and lumps. They sent for some doctors in sneasels and weasels to tell them what ought to be done. All sorts and conditions of famous physicians came hurrying round at a run. They all made a note of the state of his throat. They asked if he suffered from thirst. They asked if the sneezels came after the weasels or if the first sneezel came first. They said if you teasel a sneezel or weasel, a, a measle may easily grow. But humour or pleasel the weasel or sneezel, the measle will certainly go. They expounded the reasons for sneezels and weasels, the manner of measles when new. They said if he freezels in draught and in breezels, then freezels may even ensue. Christopher Robin got up in the morning, the sneezels had vanished away, and the look in his eye seemed to say to the sky, now, how to amuse them today. Oh, isn't that absolutely <laughs> Do you like beautiful? that one? <laughs> I absolutely love that one. It raises the question of what was the right treatment for his sneezels oh, and weasels, because yes, it, it does say like... where they're going to treat his cold and so on. So well, calling in lots... Of, well, there was definitely a team-based approach there, I think. They got also, as many experts in weasels and sneezels and mumps. And also and a concern measles. that if he was out in the cold, he was some going 
to somehow get worse yes. or be more likely to catch his infection. The evidence suggests that that is not the case. No, so okay. Every parent will say, <laughs> that, if you go out like that, you'll catch a cold. There is no evidence that getting cold makes you more prone to getting a cold. But it's something we like to believe, isn't we it? Did. Yes. <laughs> and I did find another one. Here we go. We've got a bit of time. Oh, we've got a time before an announcement, haven't we? Okay. This doesn't actually mention the name of any particular condition, but I believe what we're talking about here is priaprism. Um, yes, priaprism or priapism. Priaprism. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Um, from uh, Priap, I think it was, who was the uh, character in Greek mythology, is it? Oh, was a constant. Wandering around in a constant state of, shall we say, erotic excitement and Indeed. engorgement. Right. Okay. Well, it's you know somebody's written a poem about this called, <laughs> called Bertie's Little Problem. <laughs> Bertie was a troubled boy and in need of correction because he was disposed to have an unconcealed erection. The vicar hid his children's eyes, the nuns they blushed quite red. His mother beat her scraggy breast, said, why couldn't I have a stoner? Instead, I'm lumbered with this kid who can't control his boner. She took him to the doctor who sent him to the shrink, but all she had to offer was cold water from the sink. We should have done a trigger warning before this particular we have done. I mean, it's, well, it's kind of innuendo, isn't it, really? It is kind of innuendo, but it actually raises the important question of the medical condition called priapism. I don't know whether you worked in emergency, Dr. Band, whether you ever saw someone with priapism. I, I haven't, actually. It is. I, I have worked in emergency, but I'm aware of the condition, but uh, not, not seen a patient with that. It's, it's yeah. one of those things that everyone jokes about, but it's actually a surgical <laughs> emergency mm. because uh, if you can't get the blood out of that organ, then eventually bad things happen. Mm. Um, and we've seen a little, a little bit of an upswing, should I say, <clears throat> in cases of priapism because of... Uh, chem sex of people yeah. um, taking at parties. Taking too much Viagra. <laughs> taking, t- yeah, taking too much Viagra in association with other uh, medications yeah. and ending up in emergency departments with Or as well and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, so. is, uh, which, which still sounds very amusing, but actually it's not humorous at all for the person who's got it. It is a surgical emergency. Have you got one last one for us? One that you got it is about the ED department. The Go doctor scratches his head and is almost struck dumb. Why does his patient have a strawberry stuck up his bum? The only answer is, on a strawberry, he must have sat. Then he says, I'll give you some cream to put on that. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of a theme emerging here, Prudence. I, th- I thought we were renaming some diseases. Oh, I got on a diversion. There's much more fun things to do at this time of the year. Oh, you're excellent. Well, the, um, <laughs> uh, it, it is now to, nearly time to wrap up. And it's uh, time to say a huge thank you, thank you to our wonderful studio guest from the Grattan Institute, uh, Daniel Romanes, and on the phone, Peter Breeden, uh, who wrote that amazing report uh, from the Grattan Institute. Do jump onto the Grattan Institute website. Have a look at that about the future of general practice and what we should be doing. Uh, we had a Zoom guest from the UK. I said from the UK. She, Switzerland. She was yes. actually in Switzerland, yes, an American great. in Switzerland who's an editor for the British Medical Journal. There's something very international about all that. Appearing, Dr. appearing in Brunswick. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Jenny Razanathan. Uh, wonderful to have Jenny on the, on the Zooming machine. Um, thank you to the multi-talented Dr. Nick Team, Prudence Dean, Dr. Band, Yay. and also to the two who weren't with us today, Misdiagnosis and Dr. Sonia, who will be back next year. Uh, this is the last radiotherapy show for 2023, so a huge thanks to everyone at this absolutely magnificent radio station for making all this work. Beck Hornsby, the programme manager, Dave Hoochin, the station manager, they do such a great job all year round. And Elizabeth McCarthy, our talks producer, finds us so many amazing stories and talented people. Special thanks to Adam Christou, who taught this very poor student how to operate the panel. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.